Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. My most important uh, mission up here is to introduce our next speaker. And uh, I have had the privilege of being in uh, the SA Fellowship here in Atlanta for uh, over 20 years. And uh, one of the people that was in the group when uh, I first got involved here uh, is John D. And John D. is going to be our speaker. Uh, John has been a great contributor to our fellowship and very actively involved in it for all of these years and uh, has served many roles, uh, service roles locally. He had been a uh, very dedicated high school teacher and uh, retired here recently, so uh, we're excited that uh, he's going to have more time available to uh, contribute a lot more. But uh, he has been a close friend of mine. He's been a great service to our fellowship, and many people here know him and love him well. And it's my pleasure to introduce John. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Mans. Like Mans said, I met him, we met each other a long time ago. Uh, I came in the meeting, the group, around 97, and we started, uh, we were struggling together. And one of the things that we started doing was we would call each other early in the morning. I was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning for some reason, and I said, Mans, give me a call before you go to work. And we would start to do that. It helped a little, you know, it helped some. Uh, He retired and the call stopped. And, but I kept getting up, but now I'm retired, and now neither of, none of, one of us want to call each other. <laughs> so, but uh, Mancy's my sponsor now, and uh, he's guided me to help integrate the essay program and spirituality. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But I, I want to thank Jerry and Paul and the rest of the uh, planning committee for inviting me to speak today. My name is John Dorn, and I'm a sexaholic. And I came into SA in 1997 after years of trying to find happiness, joy, and peace in alcohol, pornography, and lust. But I was looking in the wrong places for this. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, were not cracked up. They were. They were not cracked up what they were supposed to be. I tried to relieve my pain with material things: alcohol, marijuana, sex, lust, and lots of lust. My acting out behavior started with sex and with myself. Eventually, this escalated to other forms of acting out: with pictures, acting out. I'd go into the woods and act out, and so forth. I mixed alcohol in this too. Doing this made me happy and I did not think anyone was getting hurt. I did not realize that it, what it was doing to me either. I never dated in high school. 
I had a number of friends who were girls, talked with them, but I always never wanted to take the risk of getting hurt, being rejected. So I kind of stayed to myself. I was locked in to me. After high school, I attended Culinary Institute of America. Always wanted to be a chef, owned my own restaurant. It was there that my acting out behaviors escalated even more. I would just listen to my friends when we'd have our bowl evenings uh, talking about their sexual adventures and I'd just keep my mouth quiet and just listen and take it all in and fantasize about the whole thing. One night in October of 1977, uh, my friends decided we were going to go to a pornographic movie and that was my first one. So I went and it was my first experience and I was hooked immediately. I remember sitting in the movie theater, covering my eyes up like this, you know, saying, I really don't want to see this, but deep down in my mind, I was saying, this is disgustingly wonderful, because I was hooked on this. This is what I wanted. This just drew me more into myself. My classmates would go home for the weekends. I would stay up there and just act out like crazy. One of the things that relaxed me, relaxed me around my friends was alcohol. So when we would have parties in the dorm and there was alcohol, I usually got drunk and acted foolish. Then I would go back to the dorm room and act out again. Sex and alcohol were linked together. Alcohol was my liquid courage, especially around girls. Later I would discover, besides having a problem with lust, I had a problem with alcohol. After graduation from the CIA, I went to France for more training. It was great opportunity for me, but I was lonely, I was scared, and I was frightened. I took care of this by acting out with pictures and alcohol. No one knew me over there. I had my own room. I could purchase my materials and take care of myself, and that's what I did. Eventually, I left that job. I was in the Pyrenees Mountains for about four months, and then I went over to Paris and worked there, and um, I did the same thing there. And I was very lonely. In fact, one Christmas, I was so lonely, I went to a pornographic movie. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, but that's what I did. And, and that followed me even when I came home. There were many times that on Christmas Eve, I'd go, I'd go act out. And, and that's it, very shameful for me. This pattern continued many, for many years. I came back to the States and was able to really get a great job in corporate conference centers. They were just starting about then. And like Bill W. says in the big book, I feel like I had arrived. I was on top of the world. This was a great opportunity for me. Because in the food business, you're usually working seven days a week, all kinds of crazy hours. But in this conference center business, I was only working five days a week and maybe a couple nights I had weekends off. And so I really had a great opportunity to really practice my trade, learn through things, learn to be a better chef. But really all I really learned to do was be a better sex addict because all I wanted to do was act out. I would, uh, instead of working to, to uh, be a better chef, I was working to support my addiction to lust. I got involved with an employee, I would get, uh, I would get, come to work sometimes drunk on lust after looking at pornography the night before, and I didn't realize how it was affecting my job. Eventually, the relationship blew up, and I wanted to leave the job. 
the company I work for laid me off. I think they probably fired me too because uh, my my uh, productivity was down. My, my, I wasn't doing the job well. I did not realize how how lust and pornography were affecting my life and my relationships with coworkers and siblings. Um, just to show you how bad it was, I, I had been uh, the company tried to put me in another uh, uh, property. And uh, so it was in Philadelphia, and it was at the top of one of those big buildings. It was a private club. And uh, I would go in. I'd have to be in there by 7.30 in the morning. Um, what I would do is I would go down to the city about 5 or 6 in the morning because they had 24-hour uh, pornography shops. And I would get my drug in the morning, and I would go to work the next uh, Go to work and, you know, get to work. And the day was horrible. I, could, I couldn't. I couldn't cope with it. I couldn't get the I couldn't get the food out on time, and it just it just was horrible. And so eventually, like I said, they laid me off. And what I tried to do is I tried to open my own little catering business, but that failed in nine months because I kept drinking and lusting the profits away. I I I, I, uh, I didn't see the relationship. I just figured. This was a part of me over here, but I could not bring my regular life and this together. It just, it just wasn't working. Um, but eventually, I, like I said, I never realized. I didn't realize this then. This was in the early '80s, and um, after about two years, my old company calls me back and says we have a brand new site, a conference center down in North Carolina, Winston Salem. Uh, and uh, we'd like you to go interview for that job. And I said, great, I'll take it, you know, I'll go, I'll take it. And I did, I got that job. And uh, wouldn't you know the same exact thing happened? I had this crazy thought in my mind that uh, if I moved to another state or got, got a new situation, that I would get better. Well, that doesn't work. Four weeks I found my fix and the same pattern started happening. And Things worked well for maybe a year, year and a half, but then it started getting bad again, mixing the lust, mixing the drunkenness from the lust, the drunkenness from the booze, and eventually uh, I left that job. They, they transferred me to another property, and it was down here. And uh, so eventually what happened was at that property, uh, things weren't working out again. And uh, my boss called me into the office and says, we need your resignation or we're going to put you on a 90-day probationary period and then we'll probably be fired. And I said, well, I'm sick and tired of the food business, so I will, I will resign. I did not see, I blamed for my problems, I blamed on the food service industry. I did not see that I was the problem. So what I decided to do was I went... Uh, I decided that I was going to get out of food service and I would go back to college because I only had a culinary degree, so I didn't have any uh, any other degree. So I had to go back to college uh, and start all over. Excuse me. And, and uh, with all my classes, it took me seven years to, to get a degree in education, and uh, I was able to get out of the food service industry. I used the food service. Uh, I got a job cooking. Worked at night, went to school in the day, did that for seven years, was able to get out of the business. And that, that's what I wanted to do. 
I got a job teaching, had one interview as a, to become a teacher, started teaching math to sixth graders, my but I was still sick. And I knew there was something wrong, and I realized I needed to do something. And I, I went to a counselor, and we kind of talked about it. And he was more worried about talking to me about my relationship with parents and all that stuff. But we really didn't talk about any kind of addiction to the sex. He did mention to me, though, S.A., and he gave, he told me it's in the phone book. Um, so uh, my first year of teaching was horrible. I mean, I was impatient. I was angry. I couldn't get the kids to do what I wanted to. I was frustrated because I didn't know really what I was doing. And uh, it was bad. It was bad. And um, eventually, now... This is like May, or this is like March of 97. My sister had, uh, was just about ready to have a baby in April. And uh, so I was uh, going to, uh, she had the baby, and I went up to visit, and uh, I, got to, I got to hold my niece. And uh, the moment I held her, the Lord spoke to me and said, uh, you need to clean yourself up for this child. You can't keep acting the way you are acting and behaving. And uh, two weeks later, I made my call to SA. And this was uh, April of 97. And I went into the program. So my niece doesn't know that story. Maybe one day I'll tell her. But she's very special because that's what led me, got me to come to this. Um, I got into the program, and uh, I went to my first meeting, and it was like this huge weight came off my shoulders. I, I went to the newcomer meeting, and I heard a guy say there that, you know, John, you're where you need to be. SA is the Paris Island of S groups. And I said, well, that's where I need to be because I can't do this on my own, and I can't be trusted to have any set my own boundaries, you know. I need somebody to say, this is the way you do it, and I'll just follow along. And so I would come to the meetings, and uh, I worked the steps. I proudly said my sobriety date. And uh, things were looking better. Teaching was getting better. I was becoming a better teacher. I was getting more patient. I was, fi I was starting to care about what the kids felt about, you know, I felt more empathy towards the children and towards other people instead of everything on me. But my sobriety, I lied. I lied a lot those, that first year and a half. I was saying I'm sober, but I was taking half measures. My sponsor told me, you can't do that, but I didn't listen to him. Uh, <laughs> I said, you don't know who you're talking to here. I can do, I can tell you not to do that, but I'm going to do it. And so, so I did. You know, I took half measures. I do pornography, inappropriate touching of myself. And um, eventually it caught up to me. Uh, my dad passed away the following year, 1998, and I was a basket case with that. And I used the half measures to help to... Uh, uh, cope with that, and, but eventually, uh, one time, I uh, was was uh, taking these half measures and looking at things, 
And I lost my body. Just reacted. And I had an admission. I never touched myself. It just happened. So I called somebody and he said, that, that's acting out because you were looking at the stuff and this happened. I said, okay. And so I was devastated. I said, wow, a year and a half. And now I'm back to this, back to step zero. And I realized I needed to relook at my program. And I needed to see where did I mess up? Where did I need to work harder? One of the first places I needed to work harder was in that first step, that second part of the first step to realize that my life is unmanageable. Because I tried to manage these half measures thinking I could get away with it. Well, eventually my body said, you can't get away with it. And I'm, and, and this is what's gonna happen if you keep doing it. So one day, um, I, I called a friend of mine and told him what happened. He says, you need to get to a meeting. And I started to go to AA meetings. And um, my, my sponsor told me, tell me what happened. And uh, he said, uh, I said, okay. I said that uh, he, uh, he messed me up. Uh, I told him that, well, I had this wonderful idea that I could go to this place and have a beer and be okay. Well, he says, maybe you have a problem with drinking. So that's why I went to AA. And eventually I went to AA. I admitted, I admitted I had a problem with alcohol. I admitted I was an alcoholic. And I started to get sober. And I started to practice honesty. My life was turning around. I was practicing cash register honesty. I was listening to tapes of people who were sober explaining the AA big book to me. And talking about things like uh, cash register honesty, always checking the smallest little things in. And my life was turning around and it was getting better. And honesty was becoming a habit. When somebody would tell me something that I wanted that wasn't said, well, maybe you should tell them this and it was an untruth. I said, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I've been lying all my life. We're going to tell the truth and let it, let it fall where it lands. So my life was turning around and I realized I had a choice that I could either go the negative way and act on these thoughts and temptations or I could choose the program and I could choose God and my higher power. And that's what I did. I chose my higher power. I went back to college after I went back and earned two higher degrees. I went back, got a master's degree and I got a doctoral degree. Because one of the things I didn't do in the food service I came really good at acting out and lusting, but I really became a bad chef because I didn't keep up with, I didn't learn new things, right? Well, I swear that I only had one change, uh, career change in me, and that I was never going to stop learning about being a better teacher. So that's why I went back and got these higher degrees. Um, but I realized I was staying sober, and this was like the 2000s, and, but I really wasn't doing much with the program. And my vivid recall was still there. The memories were still bothering me. And I realized I needed to improve my spirituality. Uh, in 2002, we had a, uh, a convention, international convention, and I was got involved with helping with that one. And, and quickly, I got to meet Roy Kay. 
And that was very special to me. I, I shook his hand and that was about it. But just to say thank you to that man for helping me, providing me with the literature and the place to come to feel safe and to get well. Um, and so I started to realize that after I met Roy, I, I was staying sober. But like I mentioned earlier, I still was having problems with the vivid recalls and I was still having problems with coping with fear and anxiety. And I was having the problem of these omissions that when I would get really scared or get very anxious or if I got a call in my classroom and the parent wants to see me, I would get frightened. And I, I, I would have the omission. And uh, so this, this stopped, this continued even though I was sober, this problem kept occurring and kept occurring. Well, I realized I had to go deeper. I had to go deeper and, and learn how to cope with these memories. Because I think it's interesting that these thoughts and memories and temptations never go away. They, they never, they're, they're permanent. But it's how I cope with them daily as each one comes up. And one of the things I had to learn to do, you know, in the big book it always talks about staying or stopping. We've stopped many times. How do we stay stopped? And these are some things that I have done to help me stay stopped. And one of them was, I always talk about my slip that happened in 99. That, and I don't, I share it with you, with all of, with my uh, colleagues, but I really am selfish because I need to remember it because this is a disease of forgetfulness and that is not, it's really easy to forget that you, you messed up like that. So I always kind of share that. I want that in front of me. Also, I remember that I really never had a whole lot of friends, but you guys are my friends. You are my family. I can come in here and I feel love and I feel safe. And so that's really important. In SA, I have made such good friends that I have been able to go out, travel to different countries, enjoy them, you know, it, it's been great. Now, uh, one of the things that I need to do, though, is I found that the temptations or, or the memories were just, just bothering me and the emissions kept occurring. So what do I need to do about this? And I, and I started uh, reading scripture in the morning, doing my meditations in the morning instead of turning the television on. So I read the Bible, I read the essay books and things like that. And I started to realize that I need to start to turn some of this trust I need to trust my higher power. I need to let the Spirit of God take over, take me over. I need to die to myself, to these temptations, to these fears. And I need to look at these temptations and fears, not as a negative, but as a positive. To change my attitude as to how I view them. Because before I would have these, and I feel, oh God, I'm going to go through this again. And it always led to something bad. But now, if I turn it around and say, okay, I, I, I feel this pain, I'm going to go through it, 
Christ suffered more than I ever did, so I'll, I'll suffer with him. And I get through it. Because I have trust that my higher power is going to get me through this and that I will rise on the other side of this. And I, Roy talks about in the book, suffering. He says you must suffer to get well. Well, I took it one step further and looked at it as we got two types of suffering. We have negative suffering and we have positive suffering. Negative suffering is when, when I give in to the temptation, it feels... You know, before before I give into it, you feel like, oh God, I gotta have this or I'll die, right? And then I do it, and then I felt good for maybe two seconds, and then I feel crappy for a week later, and my mind is all fried. Or the positive suffering of go through it, give that temptation over, do the suffering part with the higher power, and eventually that temptation subsides. So to look at those in a positive way is what helps me get through this. And then I said, wow, I'm finding my higher power in these really bad times. That's where I find Jesus. That's where I find my Christ, is in these temptations, in these... Uh, I'm almost done. Okay? See, you messing me up again. Uh, that's where I find Jesus in the temptations but in order for me to have this deeper spirituality I had to have this change of attitude in my mind of how I view this instead of looking at it negatively start to accept these things positively and realize that and trust in my higher power will get me through it will get me through it I had to embrace suffering and temptations with love. Later on, I think, think there's a breakout meeting on this. This is a disposition of the heart. This is turning things totally around. And, and it took me a while to get that way. And I mean, I'm just not saying five years ago. I'm saying within the last year and a half that I had to really... Uh, that I had to really, uh, to, that I had to really do this. Okay, that I had to give over all these temptations to my higher power to embrace this suffering and lust, and realize that God is going to shield me in all forms of, in all of these lust forms. And the last, last few things I want to say is finally, what helps me stay sober is love. Love is the key. Love is what will keep me on the right path. Love of the program. Love for my brothers and sisters in the program. Looking for the same thing I am. Serenity, peace, joy. Love for the realization of the dependence that I must have on my Lord. Love for my daily trials and tribulations that I go through because it allows me to find my higher power that is in my heart and not covered up and masked by my, by my shame, my fear, my guilt, remorse, and lust. And that provides a powerful light that can be a beacon to my happy, joyous, and free life. This is my real connection. By the way, this past year I've learned to really trust the Lord. And my emissions have stopped. 
I don't have that problem anymore. I don't take any more drugs for it. This is not a problem anymore because I let nothing disturb me. I let nothing affright me. All things are changing. God is only changeless. Patience gains all things. Who has God wanteth nothing alone. God will suffice. Thank you very much. like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.